In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples about the purpose of his journey to Jerusalem. He told them he would lay down his life. They didn't respond with worship. In fact, they began jockeying for power. Today on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg encourages us to consider our own response to the gospel and to let go of our desire for status and for privilege. First of all, and this is the only thing I wrote in my notes in terms of a heading, was verse 32, he told them what was going to happen to him. He told them what was going to happen to him. Now, there's nothing genius in that, is there? Because that's actually what verse 32 says. And he does so in the context of their heading up to Jerusalem. Now, you would think that the response of the disciples would be to fall on their faces in the dirt. And whatever they've managed to grasp out of all of this would crush them and produce in them adoration and expectation. But the very reverse is the case. So we move from Jesus explaining what was going to happen to him to the disciples' concern with what he might do for them. First, Jesus explains what's going to happen to him. Now the disciples express their concern as to what he might do for them. That's the second main heading, verse 35. That means there's only one to go after this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder, came to him. In other words, the they remove themselves, it would appear, from the larger group that's moving. And they sequester Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, Jesus says, What is it that you have in mind? Verse 36. They reply, verse 37, We like to have the best seats in the house when you come into your glory. It's quite amazing, isn't it? If you're not amazed by this, you're not thinking. You've already fallen asleep. If you're thinking at all, you say, this is incredible. I'm going up to Jerusalem to suffer and die at the hands of cruel men. They'll spit on me, flog me, abuse me, and everything else. You've hardly got that out of your mouth. Two, two, two of your key guys come up and say, hey, by the way, uh, just, you know, we're just thinking. That we're trying to get ahead of the game here with some seats. And, uh, you know, when you finally, we're not sure what all you mean by this messianic kingdom, but we've got enough of a notion that you're going to sit on the throne of your father, David, and your kingdom will never come to an end. And so we were just wondering, Jesus, we were talking about it ourselves. There's no reason for us not to mention it to you. Can we just have the seats, uh, one on the right and the other uh, at the, the left in your glory? One of the other gospel writers tells us that their mother was leading the charge. No surprise. My boys would like a nice seat, Jesus. They're good boys. The Jewish mother looking after her boys. My boys are good boys, Jesus. Some people always have to sit in the right seat, don't they? Don't we? Nothing shows our pride quite as much as going to a wedding reception at which we have no significance at all, and you have to look for your, num your, look for your table number. Let me give you a word of advice. Don't start at table 1 and work down. Start at table 22 and work up. It's far less painful. <laughs> Especially if you think you ought to be in the top two or three tables. Well, what do we have here from the disciples? This isn't loyalty. This isn't loyalty. This is just ambition. This is raw ambition. 
This, says Calvin, is a bright mirror of human vanity. So Jesus says to them, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. You just don't know what you're asking. He says, I've got a question for you. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or the baptism with which I am to be baptized, which will bring us to our our study this evening? And then the, the response that they make is incredible, isn't it? Oh, yes, we're able. Not only do they not fully grasp what Jesus has been saying, but they don't have a a solid understanding of themselves. Remember, we said those things were prerequisites for the rich young ruler to make entry into the kingdom. He needed to understand who Jesus was, and he needed to understand who he was. Until he understood who he was as someone who was offending against God's law, he had no interest, really, in finding in Jesus a Savior. But once he saw who he was, these fellows can't see themselves. Now, the details, as I say, of the baptism and the cup and so on, I'm going to leave until later. And Jesus is going to distinguish between uh, what he will do by way of his suffering and the experience that his followers will have of suffering and death. But when he says, you know, you will actually uh, face this, he doesn't say, and since you're going to face this, as a reward for that, there's a pretty fair chance that those two seats might be open to you. There are people that I meet all the time who think that as long as we can go through enough suffering, then that is the key. Uh, A reward for that will then be, be ours. We all have our cross to bear, they usually say, in the hope that somehow or another that will be reciprocated. But look at what Jesus is saying. To face suffering and death, which they will, is not going to be the means of securing the best spots in the kingdom because, verse 40, those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. For whom have they been prepared? We're not told. But we are given a little inkling from the end of our last study, aren't we? Verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, the people we think are going to be in those special spots probably aren't going to be there. And the most unlikely people that we would ever anticipate, they probably will be there. That's all we ever get. But what we do know is that Jesus defers to his Father. He says, I'm not the one that's going to be giving out those seats. They have been prepared. My Father will take care of that. Well, you say, that's good. At least he's got 10 other good guys uh, that are separate from the two fellows that have been causing the trouble. No. Look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. The inference is clear. When they heard that they had got a jump start on them, that they were in the, quotes Head Start program, then they decided that that is not fair. Why should you get an advantage over us? After all, the two of you, along with Peter, were already in the transfiguration thing. Isn't that good enough for you? You get in the transfiguration. Now you're down to two. You brothers, you've done Peter. Poor old Peter. He's on the outs now. Peter's with us. He's with the ten. He's usually with the three. And they were indignant. Haven't they learned anything? I just think of a quote from uh, Huckleberry Finn, you know. Don't you know nothing? That's that great part in Huckleberry Finn where he's telling telling the girl, I forget her name, that he's, he has, he's a part of this church and it has like 10 pastors. And she knows that he's, he's lying again because he tells lies all the time. And, and she says, well, you know, what do they do? And Huck says, oh, they do this and that. And, 
and she says, well, that doesn't sound very much. She says, uh, well, why, why, did he even, why did he even have them? And he says, for style. <laughs> Don't you know nothing? For style. Don't you know nothing? Anyway, they got that for free. Um, <laughs> But they don't know nothing. What we have here is the future leadership of the church. Here you've got the core group, the individuals that are about to go out into Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and establish the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here they are under the tutelage of Jesus. Jesus has explained the nature of his suffering, not for the first time, but for the third time. And they are having an intramural discussion about who's going to have the best seats when they get into the kingdom. So, thirdly and finally, a word of guidance from Jesus for whoever wants to become great. A word of guidance from Jesus for whoever wants to become great. And we know that there are at least a couple of contenders for that position, namely James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, I don't know about this, but maybe Jesus asked Judas for a coin. He said to Judas, he said, go in that bag of yours. You keep all the cash. Flip me a coin. Judas gives him a coin. He takes it, and on the head is either Tiberius or Augustus, one of the Roman governors. And then he flips it to the tails, and on the reverse side of the coin, on the other side from the head, it bears the inscription, He who deserves adoration. He who deserves adoration. And Jesus might have said, you see, that's the kind of thing that we're living in the middle of, isn't it? That's the preoccupation. This is the way of the Gentiles. They lord it over each other. Their authorities and their, their processes are such that they vaunt themselves. They put themselves first. Then comes our phrase, which is the heading for our study, not so with you. Not so with you. You don't do this. You're my followers. You're different. At least you're supposed to be. Now, I've just explained to you what Jerusalem is going to mean. I, the good shepherd, will lay down my life for you. Having done that, you follow up by asking about your status and your privilege and your valuation. Guys, that's what the Gentiles do. Not so with you. It is in serving, he says, that your greatness is displayed. That honor is found in giving it, not in getting it. That the way to up is the way down. And that the true measure of this, as we will see this evening, is embodied in Jesus himself. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped but made himself of no reputation. That's it, right there in a nutshell. A couple of final words by way of application. Is this challenging? Or is this challenging? First of all, on an individual basis, it confronts the pride that rises in my heart and perhaps in yours too. It addresses a culture that is preoccupied with self-esteem, self-aggrandizement, status, and valuations that are made on the basis of things that are transient 
and eventually worthless. And we live in the middle of that, professing to be the followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, this is the kind of thing that marks the culture. Not so with you. Not only individually, but as a church. A church can take on a persona of pride, a persona of self-evaluation and self-assertiveness. Usually it will come from the leadership, filter through the group. And the body of Christ in any given area, let's just stay within the continental United States for the moment, the body of Christ within any given area will at the same time be confronted by the danger of these things too. You don't have to look hard at the moment. I found it without looking for it yesterday. In fact, it came up and jumped at me from the internet, describing sad and sorry circumstances in a significant evangelical ministry that, is, that would be well known by all of us. And at the very heart of it is the problem of pride and tyranny and self-assertiveness and heavy-handedness on the part of leadership, despite the fact that Jesus says, greatness is this. Either we're going to do what the Bible says, or we're going to do what the culture says. The same is true in relationship to the desires for evangelical Christianity, to take its place at the table, to be regarded as significant, to be regarded as intellectually acceptable, to be regarded as socially acceptable and defeat, and so on. And this great quest for somehow or another being regarded as, you know, justifiably in the mainstream of everything and, and, and really in, in, in the heart of it all. Since when was that ever the case in the history of the church? And to the extent that it ever approximated to it, was it ever an effective mechanism for the work of the gospel? You're sensible people. Read church history. But the apostles, by the time Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, are confronted by this very issue. The issues of status and significance and division in the church and the exaltation of one name above another name and gathering behind one group and this is my favorite and that's my favorite and he's significant and he does this and he's clever as that and so on. And Paul says, listen, guys, listen carefully to me. You've got this completely wrong. You're acting as if you're kings. I wish you were kings, he says, ironically. Because if you were kings, then I could hang around with you. Then I could be like a king or a, or a, a junior king. He says, but we're not even close to being kings. Listen to how he describes his apostleship. It seems to me that God has put the apostles, that is himself and his colleagues, on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. I'd like to introduce you to the Apostle Paul and some of his friends today. You'll see them. They'll be coming through Washington, D.C. in just a moment. No, they're not at the front of the parade. No, they're not in a large cavalcade. No, they will be coming at the back behind an old broken-down truck, and they're manacled to the back of the truck, and they look absolutely garbage. Three cheers for the apostles as they come through. We have been made a spectacle, he says, to the whole universe— to angels as well as to men. We're fools for Christ, but you're so wise. 
you are honored, he's being ironic, sarcastic, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, he says, if you want to have a sort of summary of how well we're doing, listen to this. Up to this moment, we have become—you ready? The scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Now, he's not crying in his coffee. He's not going, oh, we've become the scum of the earth. He's going, we've become the scum of the earth. We're the refuse of the world. Oh, I know you wanted us at the National Cathedral, but we don't care about the National Cathedral. We're the scum of the earth. Why would you have the scum of the earth at the National Cathedral? You wouldn't have the scum of the earth at the National Cathedral today, would you? Of course you wouldn't. But here we are. Oh, we should be at the National Cathedral. Why? Why? Well, well, because. Because what? Since when was this story of a suffering, bloodied, crucified Messiah an acceptable message? It never has been. It never will be. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is the power of God to those who believe. The Christian church does not have a responsibility to climb up the ladders of social status, to establish its valuation as if somehow or another we are there for the world to view as a great spectacle of acclaim. No, it is the absolute reverse. Are you challenged by this? I definitely am. When I finished this, I was ready to just go and just put my head in a blanket and then just pull it over my head for about 20 minutes or so. Because I said, how this confronts my pride, how this confronts the potential pride of Parkside, how this confronts evangelical Christianity in contemporary America today. No wonder our friends in China, in Somalia, in Burma cannot understand what we're on about. They're being taken out and shot for the gospel. We're here to try and get our position in society. Who's got it right? Let me ask you. But just before I went into the depths of despair, I had a word of encouragement that came my way. And this is what it was. I suddenly realized, and then I went to look for it. I said, now, didn't this John, this thunder boy, John, didn't he finally get this right? Didn't he, didn't he finally figure it out? Yes, he did. By God's grace, the only way we ever will. How long did it take him? Quite a long time. Because he was an old man when he wrote his first letter. And in his elderly days, he writes to his readers, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's the same John who said, Jesus, I'm just wondering about my seat, you know. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, John. But isn't it good that God, I hope God will spare me long enough, spare me long enough to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in grace 
to grow down and thereby to grow up. And I hope that he will be tolerant and patient with us as a congregation. And I trust and pray that he will look on the evangelical community in the continental United States with compassion and with grace and forgive us our jealousies and our self-assertiveness and our clubs and our accolades and our preoccupation with our names and our numbers and our stuff. We haven't really got very far beyond Mark chapter 10, loved ones, have we? That's why we can't read about these disciples and say, oh, I can't believe they did that. Because I look into the Bible, and it's a mirror. As Calvin said, it is a mirror of my vanity. God will share his glory with no one. A humbling reminder from our study of Mark on Truth for Life. Alistair Begg will return in a moment with the closing prayer, so please keep listening. But first, I'm excited to tell you about a book we've selected to go along with this series. It's written by Alistair's friend Gary Millar, and it's a concise overview that offers a clear explanation of what it means to know God, to be changed by God, and to live according to God's instructions. The book is titled, Need to Know, Your Guide to the Christian Life. Gary explains how to let the fundamental truths of the gospel take root in your heart, changing everything about the way you see God and see yourself and see the world around you. And he explains what this miraculous internal change will look like on the outside as we live our lives shaped by gospel priorities. We'll send you a copy of Need to Know along with our thanks when you donate today to support this ministry. Truth for Life serves as a source of clear, relevant Bible teaching for countless people worldwide. Your generosity makes that possible. So donate today or join the team of Truth Partners by automating your monthly gift. Go to truthforlife.org slash donate or call 888-588-7884. And remember to request your copy of the book Need to Know. If you'd prefer to mail your donation along with your request for the book, our address is Truth For Life, P.O. Box 398000, Cleveland, Ohio, 44139. Now here's Alistair to close with prayer. Just a moment of silence just as we come before God ourselves and acknowledge that we're not what we once were, but we're not quite what we're going to be either that the work of God is to conform us to the image of his Son, that when he says, not so with you, it's not simply a directive, but it is a word of grace, because the work that his goodness has begun, he will bring to completion. And so we can trust in him, looking from ourselves to the one who embodies this, both in his life and in his death. And in the name of that same Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
I'm Bob Lapine for Alistair Begg and all of us at Truth For Life. We hope you have a great weekend. Hope you're able to gather with your church family and that you can relax a little bit this weekend. And if you're looking for a way to supplement the teaching you receive at your local church, keep in mind Alistair's teaching at Parkside Church is streamed live most weekends. To find out if Alistair will be teaching this weekend, check the schedule at truthforlife.org live. And then join us again Monday as we continue our series on the gospel according to Mark. Today's program was furnished by Truth For Life. Where the learning is for living.